My topic tonight is faith, healing, and obedience. A number of years ago, I had the privilege of working at the Wildwood Medical Missionary Institute, and often I would travel up into the hills of Georgia and give Bible studies. Now, down in that part of the world, we call those uh, narrow valleys hollers. And so we'd go back into these hollers and uh, find uh, families that would take Bible studies, and I'd lead, lead the students who would give Bible studies. I was studying the Bible in a very primitive log cabin on one occasion. It had a dirt floor, no running water, an outhouse out in the back. And as I was studying with the family, a man walked in, and he was smoking a big cigar. And the first words out of his mouth were, Praise God, I'm healed. Praise God, I'm healed. Well, I looked at the big cigar man. And I said, what are you healed of, big cigar man? He said, I'm healed of cancer. I said, tell me the story. He said, about six months ago, I went to my primary care physician, and he x-rayed my lungs and discovered that I had a spot on my lungs, and that spot was malignant. And I went back to him today, six months later, they x-rayed me again, And uh, now there's no spot on my lungs, and I'm healed. I was young in those days, not quite as diplomatic as I am today. (laughs) And I looked at the big cigar man, and I said, big cigar man, what about that big cigar? And he said to me, young man, it makes no difference if you smoke big cigars as long as you have faith. Because if you have enough faith, it will turn back all those poisons in the big cigars and the poisons can't touch you. Was the big cigar man right or wrong? How strong is your faith? Is it strong enough to smoke a big cigar and not get cancer? (laughs) What is faith? What is faith? I'd like you to take your Bible and turn to Hebrews, the 11th chapter. Faith is so important. In fact, it's so important that Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke on our way to Hebrews 11, and Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Evidently, before Jesus comes, faith will be in very, very short supply. What is faith? Hebrews, the 11th chapter. We begin with verse 1. Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now, that word substance is an interesting word. Sub. We know submarine, not the sandwich, but submarine. It's a boat that goes under the sea. Sub is under. Marine, of course, is dealing with sea life. Subterranean. Terranean earth. Sub is something that's under the earth. It's subterranean subterfuge, when you undermine the plans of another, that's subterfuge. So so sub is something that's under, and stand is something that stands. It's, It's firm. It doesn't move. It's immovable. So faith is that which stands under everything else in your life. Faith is that immovable quality that anchors you to God. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith stands up under everything else in my Christian life. When up seems down and down seems up, 
Faith is the evidence that God is going to cause everything to turn out right in the end. Faith is the absolute confidence that no matter what happens to me, God is much bigger than what's going on in my life. Faith is trusting God. Faith is trusting God when the days are good and when the days are bad. Faith is trusting God when I have joy and when I have sorrow. Faith is trusting God when I can laugh and when I'm crying. Faith is trusting God when I'm sick and when I'm well. Faith is trusting God as a friend well-known, knowing that he'll never do me any harm or wrong. Now, Hebrews chapter 11 begins to give you illustrations of faith. Now, be prepared for some surprises. When I began to mine the depths of Hebrews chapter 11, it changed my own thinking regarding faith. I've read this chapter hundreds and hundreds of times, but God began to bless my mind with some new insights. We go to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and though through it being dead still speaks. Abel's faith was so good that it got him killed. Isn't it curious that the first example of faith that we have in Hebrews 11 is not one who was healed, but one who died? If, he, if Abel did not have faith, he would have lived. But since he had faith, he died. If Abel would have brought an offering like his brother Cain of fruits and an offering of grain, he would have lived. So disobedience would have caused him to live, but faith caused him to die. So the idea that if you have enough faith, you're going to be healed is contrary to Hebrews 11 because the first example of faith is not one that lives, it's one that dies. Then you go to the second example of faith, verse 5. By faith Enoch was translated so that he did not see death. Now really, I'm getting confused here. Abel has faith and he dies. Enoch has faith and he lives. Whose faith was greater, Abel's or Enoch's? <laughs> Whose faith was greater, Abel's or Enoch's? Abel has faith and he dies. And Enoch has faith and he lives. We go on. You look there now at verse 7. By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness, which is according to faith. Noah has so much faith that when everything around him tells him to go, he stays. And he works for 120 years to build an ark. Noah's faith is so good that he will not move, although he's enticed to do it. And he stays on the specific task that God assigns him because he knows that running from God's task to greener pastures is not faith. That's merely presumption. So he stays right where he is on the task that God gave him for 120 years. But the next one says, verse 8, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place which he would afterward receive as an inheritance. By faith Noah stays, and by faith Abraham goes. Now I'm really confused. By faith Abel dies, and by faith Enoch lives. By faith Noah stays, and by faith Abraham goes. You go down to verse 11. By faith Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed. How old was Sarah when she conceived? How old was she? Ninety. If you don't take that, if you don't think that's faith, try it. <laughs> she conceives when she's ninety by faith and receives a child of promise by faith. 
But the same child of promise she received by faith, according to the verse 17, by faith Abraham offered up Isaac. God gave a child by faith. And she nurtured that child and watched that child grow in Jesus. But the same child that was given by faith, she had to give up by faith. Is it, is it, easier to, is it harder to bear a child by faith or give up a child by faith? Doesn't it seem a contradiction that the child of promise that would come by faith to Sarah, Abraham was told to give up that child into God's hands by faith. By faith, Abel dies, and by faith, Enoch lives. And by faith, Noah stays and works for 120 years on the same task and is content to keep banging nails when there is no evidence that there is a flood simply because God told him to do it, so he did it. And by faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out to a land that he knew nothing about, went out. And by faith, Sarah receives a child. And by faith, Abraham walks up that long mountain that morning and trusts God when he takes the knife to slay the child. This is a very confusing chapter. But there is a golden thread that shines through it that illustrates what true faith is all about. As we continue to go down through the chapter, there is one called Joseph in Hebrews 11, verse 22. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. What do you know about Joseph? By faith, Joseph was sent into Egypt. You talk about a dysfunctional family. That was Joseph's family. Sibling rivalry. It has all the illustrations of dysfunction, jealousy, pride, Joseph is sold into Egyptian bondage and he goes from the pit to the prison to the palace and he becomes one of the most wealthy men under Pharaoh in the world. By faith, Joseph is entrusted with wealth and he rules a nation. But the next illustration is Moses. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents. Verse 24, by faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked for reward. He forsook Egypt. By faith, Joseph becomes a very rich man in Egypt. And by faith, Moses becomes a poor man and he leaves Egypt. Now, I'm really confused about this chapter. Because by faith, Abel dies, and by faith, Enoch lives. And by faith, Noah stays. And by faith, Abraham goes. By faith, Sarah conceives. And by faith, Abraham gives up the child of promise. And by faith, Joseph becomes a wealthy man, prestigious in Egypt. And by faith, Moses leaves Egypt and a PhD herds sheep out in the desert. And as one man said, one, a friend, of, preacher friend of mine said, that was the most expensive wool in the history of the world. Because you don't use one who has gained a Ph.D. and spent all that money for a Ph.D. in the University of Egypt to herd sheep to get wool. By faith, Joseph becomes rich and prestigious. And by faith, Moses becomes poor and unknown. But look at this. And this is where the lights began to go on in my mind as I studied this chapter. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24. It says, By faith they quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. Now, can you imagine that? 
Here these worthies of faith were in battle. And somebody came up to them with the sun dancing and shimmering off the razor sharp edge of the sword. And when that individual came with the sword to slay them, an angel held the hands of the slayer and the sword trembled in their hands and dropped. By faith, they escaped the edge of the sword. But when you let your eyes drop down to verse 37, you get more confused because it says they were stoned. They were sawn in sunder. In two, they were tempted. They were slain with the sword. In verse 34, these people were protected from the razor edge of the sword. In verse 37, they were slain with the sword. Does it take more faith to be killed with the sword or to be slain with the sword? What is Hebrews 11 all about? God gave us Hebrews 11 to show us that faith is not telling God what I believe I want him to do and believing he's going to do it. That the circumstances of life may vary, but the constancy is trust in God. Like Abel, I may die, or like Enoch, I may live. Like Noah, I may stay on the task that God has given me and never move and be faithful. Or like Abraham, I may be called to go out from that place to someplace else. Like Sarah, I may, we may, I may not conceive. <laughs> like Sarah, my wife may conceive. And like Abraham, I may have to give up the child. Like Joseph, I may at times be in wealth. And like Moses, at times I may wander in the destitute poor. My life may be slain with the sword, or my life may be protected from the sword. What is faith? Faith is falling on my knees, weeping my eyes out because I don't know what's going on in my life, but still trusting God. Faith is knowing that he loves me, that he cares for me, that my life is in his hands, and that nothing that happens to me can take me out of his hands. How do you apply that faith to a person that's dying? How do you apply that faith in a medical practice? Does God still work miracles today in medical practice, and should you expect them? When the limits of when science reaches its limits, will Christians, by believing and trusting God, release the divine omnipotent hand of God, and can we expect to see miracles today? Are miracles a thing of the past? Should we expect miraculous cures today? Now, obviously, those miraculous cures can occur in a variety of ways. God can use modern medicine for a miraculous cure. God can use natural remedies for a miraculous cure. But should we expect supernatural results that are incredibly unbelievable. Do we say when a patient is dying, because we don't have this quality of inner trust in God, and because at times we might be frightened to put our lives on the line with God, well, whatever God's will is for the patient, that's going to happen, and they may live or they may die, and that may be God's will. How do you balance this trust in God this bedrock faith, how do you balance that with, with, with miracles? Should you expect miracles or shouldn't you? How do you balance 
trusting God and depending on His will when you anoint somebody and then praying, well, Lord, if it's your will, heal this person, and the person's not healed, and they think, well, it must not have been God's will to heal me, therefore it must be God's will that I'm sick, therefore it must be God's will that I have cancer, therefore it must be God's will that I suffer. How do you balance all this? Where is the balance between this absolute trust in God like Abel and being willing to die, or trust in God like Enoch and be willing to live? How do you balance all this? Where is there a rational approach to healing? You know, if you go back in early Advent history, there were miraculous healings. You remember the story of Hiram Edson told in Pioneer Stories Retold? It's a wonderful book to read to your children, Pioneer Stories Retold. The story is told of Hiram Edson, 1859, and Edson is in his home one day, and it's a chilly winter evening, and he's put wood in the fireplace, and he's impressed. Go heal your sick neighbor. And Hiram Edson says, I can't do that. And the Lord impressed him again. Hiram, go into your sick neighbor's house. I'm calling you to go in there and, it's heat, and, and you're going to be an instrument of healing. So it's night and Hiram Edson slogs through the snow and goes over to his sick neighbor's house. You know, in those days you didn't have an electric light. You flip on. And in those days, too, you didn't have locks on the doors. Everybody knew one another in these small villages. So Hiram Edson goes into the sick neighbor's house and he comes through the door. And as he comes through the door, all the lights are out. Everybody's asleep. And he walks into his sick neighbor's room and he takes him by the hand and he shakes him a little bit and he says, sick neighbor, rise up and be healed. I don't know what happened, but the Spirit of God worked in an unusual way. The sick neighbor rose up and he woke up. Hiram Edson said again, sick neighbor, by the grace of God, rise up and be healed. And the man rose up and the fever left him. It broke and he was healed that night instantaneously. His family gathered around, and it's a marvelous story. Pioneer stories we told, you can read it. His family gathers around. They don't know what's happened. They all rejoice and praise God. The next day, this man is out chopping wood by the side of the road, and the doctor comes by. And he sees the man that was near death the day before in the house, and he said, what are you doing out here? And the man said, I'm healed. And the doctor says, cannot be. And the man says, I'm healed. Hiram Edson came over and prayed for me. Hiram Edson came over that night, took the man to the uh, uh, testimony service at the church. The man gave a testimony. There was a revival in the church, and they had meetings every night of that church and prayed for three weeks, praising God. Where are those miracles today? Do we see them happening? Should we expect them to happen? Will they always happen? One thing for certain, and that is as you read the New Testament, when you look at the commission that Jesus gave to his disciples, he sent them forth with unusual healing power. If you look, for example, in Matthew chapter 10, Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, Jesus sent his disciples forth with unusual healing power. And when he had called his twelve disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. You notice the scripture says that when Jesus sent out his disciples, they were to cast out demons, mental illnesses, uh, depression, discouragement through prayer and faith, They were to heal all kinds of sicknesses, all kinds of disease. Was that commission only for the disciples then, 
Or should medical missionaries expect God to work miracles today? How do you blend this faith, this trust in God with this? Ministry of Healing, page 226. Ellen White quotes the Lord's promise, they shall lay hands on the sick and they'll be healed in Mark 16, verse 18. And this is what she says. The Lord's promise, they shall lay hands on the sick and they'll recover. Mark 16, 18 is just as trustworthy now as in the days of the apostles. It represents the privilege of God's children and our faith should lay hold on all it embraces. Christ's servants are the channel of his working, and through them he desires to exercise his healing power. I've struggled with these promises, and I've said to myself, where is there a balanced, rational approach that says, I can trust God in sickness and I can trust God in health, while at the same time I believe God for healing? How do you put those things together? Have you ever struggled with those same kind of issues? Have you ever wondered why the church seems to be so powerless in the face of sickness? That even as we use so many rational approaches, that so many of God's people still die. And have you ever come to the conclusion, well, this must be God's will that they die? Is it really? Is this the best we can offer? There are some studies that I've been doing recently that have been helpful to me, and I want to share them with you. If you have your Bible, I'd like you to take it and turn to James chapter 5. Because there are a number of significant questions that confront God's people today. Does God still heal the sick today? Why does God heal some people and not others? Are healings a thing of the past? What role does faith play in miraculous healing? If you have enough faith, will you always be healed? Can the devil heal the sick? If he can, how can you tell the difference between divine healings and satanic healings? What relationship does divine healing have to obedience to natural law? What role does the anointing service play in healing? Have you ever asked those kind of questions yourself? They're questions, I think, that every medical missionary physician and every preacher who's serious about Scripture struggles with. We may not have all the answers to every question. This is one of those infinite subjects that we continue to study. But I'd like to point you in a direction tonight that at least in this preacher's mind makes sense and has made a significant difference. I'd like you to take your Bible and study James chapter 5 with me. Because I believe in the embryonic fact, in in embryo in James chapter 5, when you take it word by word, phrase by phrase, and you, you give an exposition of James 5, that it points you in the right direction to answer these questions. It may not answer them all, but it does provide reasonable answers. James chapter 5, and we begin our study with James chapter 5, looking there at verse 14. Is anyone sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now we begin... Let him call for the elders of the church. Now, here is God's modern-day prescription that is a million miles from the cheapness and the imitation that we see in the popular healing services of our day. What I'm going to study with you tonight is a million miles from that. The only spirit that I want is the spirit that comes from the sanctuary that flows from healing grace into God's people 
there may be another spirit that can make people sick and withdraw his hand and claim that they are healed. I'm not interested in that spirit at all. And an understanding of James 5 and the principles that we're going to study tonight gives you a contrast between true and false healing that is remarkable. Where do you find the initiative in verse 14? Is it on the one who is the channel of God's grace for healing or is it upon the one who is to be healed? Where do you find the initiative? What does it say? Let what? Him call for the elders of the church. This is vital. This picture is not of a supposed healer in a mass meeting who points out the disease of some individual. This is rather the Spirit of God coming upon somebody who is sick. Now, why is the initiative on the one to be healed rather than the one who is the channel of God's grace? Because God respects human freedom. God respects the freedom of will. And just like in Romans where it says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Here, this person acknowledges under the influence of the Spirit that they need God's help. This person acknowledges with all of the freedom of the choice that God has given them that they cannot heal themselves. This person calls for the elders of the church as a recognition that they are hopeless and they are helpless unless God does something. So this initiative is on the part of the believer who reaches out to God, who grasps the hand of the living God at a crisis in their life. Secondly, this is not a public service. It is a private one. It is a service in which the arena of God's grace works in a humble, private way. Let him call for the elders of the church. It says, let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, I'd like you to think with me and meditate with me upon the different symbols of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. One of those symbols is rain. The Bible talks about in the day of the latter rain. So water is a symbol of the Spirit. Can you think of some other symbols of the Spirit in the Old Testament? Fire is a symbol of the Spirit, water and fire. Why does God use oil here? If you understand the oil, and why oil is used in the anointing service, why not water? Why not bring a candle next to the person as a symbol of the Holy Spirit? Why oil? Why oil? What kind of oil? Olive oil. Why? Have you ever been to Israel and you have seen the olive presses? Large stones, often this thick, this round, oh, much, much rounder than this. And the olives were taken and placed between two stones and the stones were turned. And as the oil was, uh, the olive was crushed, the olive oil flowed out. With his stripes we are healed. Jesus was bruised and crushed on the cross like the olive was crushed between the stones. The only source of healing comes from the divine grace of Jesus Christ. There is no power in us. There is no strength in us. As his life was crushed out for us, his, from him there flows the grace of healing. But there are three great meanings of olive oil in the Old Testament. 
when I have been probing the depths of this passage, when I'm called to anoint somebody now, I spend time like I'm with you. We study the meaning of olive oil. I've seen God do some wonderful things recently, wonderful things. We study olive oil. Why olive oil? Now, there are three uses of olive oil in the Old Testament. The first you'll find is in Exodus 29, verse 7. The first use of olive oil in the Old Testament is for the consecration of the priest. The consecration of the priest. You'll find that in Exodus 29. The sanctuary is built. Let them make me a sanctuary that I might dwell among them. Now, in the Old Testament, you find that the sanctuary is the dwelling place for God. In the New Testament, your bodies are a what? Temple of the Holy Spirit. So in the Old Testament, where the sanctuary was a physical dwelling place, today our bodies are that sanctuary, that temple of God. And here, in just as the Old Testament sanctuary was anointed with oil, so oil is a symbol of consecration, that my body is set aside for his purposes. That's why we anoint of oil, because it's a symbol of the consecration of the believer to the purpose and will of God. The Old Testament sanctuary was set aside by its consecration with oil for the purpose and will of God. So when we, when we anoint with oil, we are anointing the person's body and they are being consecrated to the service of God and to glorify his name. So we look there at, for example, Exodus 29, verse 7. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. So the priest is being anointed when the sanctuary is being consecrated. So when an individual is sick, they call for the elders of the church and we come and anoint with olive oil, the broken, bruised body of Christ. The oil of his grace is poured out and we set aside that sick person to the glory of his name. So we do not pray if it is your will, Lord, heal. We pray, Lord, if it is to your glory, heal. And there is a difference. It is always God's will to heal, as I will show you. But it may not always be for his glory. So what we are praying is, Lord, if it is to your glory, heal. If it is to your glory. If it is to your glory, this loved one can be raised up from this sickbed right now, Lord. Raise him up to the glory of your name. If it is to your glory, You see, for the believer, the will of God is never in doubt. The only thing that is in doubt is the moment of healing. I never pray, Lord, if it's your will, heal this person. Because I know it's his will. Now, I don't know two things. I don't know, one, whether it's to his glory for him to be healed right now. And two, I'm not wise enough, so I don't know the timing of God. Neither do I know the method of God. It may be that the person will be healed immediately. It may be that they'll be healed gradually over time. Or it may be they'll be healed in the resurrection. So what I pray is, Lord, I know it's your will to heal this person, but I'm just not sure when. And if it is to your glory to heal them now, heal them now. If it is your glory to help them to trust you and witness to some doctors and to some nurses and to their loved ones, and you're going to heal them gradually, do it then. 
If it is your glory to allow them to go to sleep and heal them in the resurrection, do that. But I know your will is never sickness. I know your will is never suffering and never pain for your children. I know that not one sparrow falls from heaven without your taking notice. I know that you weep even when the leaves fall off the trees and the fruit rots because it represents death. I know you weep when a sparrow falls. I know you weep at every hungry child and I know you're weeping over the sickness of this loved one. And Lord, the only thing I'm not sure of is what is your primary glory right now? Whether like Abel, they will die in faith, or like Enoch, they will live. I'm not sure of that, Lord, because I'm not wise enough. When I was a little boy, I wanted a bicycle. And Dad got me one for Christmas. Hid it in the closet. Oh, I looked occasionally. And oh, how I wanted that bicycle before Christmas. Oh, how I wanted it before Christmas. You know, I could imagine myself riding it. And there were times I almost went down and jumped on it and took a ride at night. But my father was much wiser than I, and he knew that I would miss a great deal of joy if I didn't come down on Christmas morning and see that bike leaning against the wall by that Christmas tree. He knew that that would be my famous Christmas. I'm a little child, and I want the loved ones that I pray for to be instantly healed. But I don't know if it's for his glory or not. But I trust my heavenly father like a little child, and I believe that when it is for his best glory, he will accomplish his best will. And if it is his for his best glory before the whole universe, that he raises the dead and 10,000 times 10,000 come right out of the tomb like that. And there's a panoply of glory before the universe. I'm okay with that if that's his will. I'm okay with that. I don't know when it is God's best glory, but I know it's his will to heal. Neither do I know the method he will use. He may use, he may use the method of instantaneously supernatural healing. He may use the method of natural remedies. He may use water treatments and diet, not only as preventive medicine, but as therapeutic. He may do that. Or he may have some discovery of modern medicine that he uses to heal. I don't know how God's going to do it. He may heal instantly, he may heal gradually, or he may heal in the resurrection. But I know it is his, his will. So when we anoint the individual calls, we come. It's a private service. We place oil on their heads symbolizing consecration. And just as the priest was set aside for God's will, so we set aside their body. Or just as the priest was set aside for God's glory, we set aside their body for God's glory. And as I anoint them, I say to them, as I place this olive oil upon your head, it is a symbol that deep within your mind, we don't put the olive oil on your thumb and we don't put it on your elbow, we put it on your forehead as a symbol in your mind that you want to glorify God. Is that the goal of your life, to glorify God? Is that the goal of your life, to please God? The priest was set aside with the oil as a symbol of bringing glory to God. Now, there's a second thing about this oil that is fascinating to me. Can you think of a time in the New Testament when oil was used? When was oil used in the New Testament? Can you think of a time? When? New Testament, oil was used? There was a man that was beaten up on the, Samaritan ro- on, on the way to Samaria. I mean, on the, on the uh, Jericho Road. I've traveled the Jericho Road more than once. 
You know, it's still a road of rough turns and uh, sharp curves today. In fact, I often, when I take tour groups to Israel, we used to do it regularly. Today it's a little less. But uh, I was been often up in the Galilee, and we came down along the uh, Jordan River, along the Jordanian border, and you cut up, you get down to uh, Jericho, and you go up to Jerusalem. When you go to Jerusalem, you go up. The road uh, is about 20 miles, 21 miles, and you go up 3,600 feet in 21 miles. Uh, in the 5th century, the Jericho Road was called the Bloody Way by Jerome. And uh, a traveler was left broken, bruised, and bloody along that road. And along came the Good Samaritan, and he bent over. And the Bible says he put oil in his wounds. Why did he do that? Because oil is always a symbol of restoration. Oil is a huge symbol in the Bible. It's a symbol of restoration. So when I anoint with oil, first I explain to the person that I'm anointing that we put oil on the forehead... Just as the priest was set aside, we set them aside for the glory of God. Secondly, I explained to them that oil is a symbol of restoration and complete healing. Oil represents in the Bible the totality of healing, physically, mentally, and spiritually. It represents in Zechariah chapter 4, the oil coming through the pipes represents the spirit of God that produces completeness and wholeness and totality in the life physically, mentally, and spiritually. So when I put the oil on their forehead, I explain to them that what we are really doing is saying, Lord, I want to be healed, not only of my physical illness, but I want to be healed deep in the recesses of my mind from bitterness, from anger, from resentment, from guilt. The oil symbolizes physical, mental, and emotional healing. Take your concordance and study oil through the Old Testament and the New Testament. You'll discover that as a threefold symbol. The first symbol is consecration. The second symbol is healing. It's healing. It is the totality of the healed mind. Recently, at an ASI convention, I was called to anoint a woman. Her husband was there. Her three children were there. They were adult children. She had been diagnosed with a melanoma. The doctors had given her six months to live. We read James, the fifth chapter. We talked about consecration, the oil of consecration. We talked about the glory of God. We talked about the fact that we don't know the timing of God's healing. It could be instant. It could be gradual. It could be immediate. We talked as well about the oil of healing, restoration. And before we anointed that woman, I looked at the group and I said, now, is there anything you want to share together? We've talked about being healed inside. Is there any healing that needs to take place here tonight? The man spoke up and he said, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist, an officer in my church, but I'm not a Christian at home. And he began to cry and he looked at his wife and he said, I've really let her down. I haven't let out in family worship. I haven't let out in prayer. I'm just an Adventist in name, but I'm not a committed Christian. But tonight I want the oil of God's grace to heal all my bitterness and anger inside. I want the oil of God's grace to make me the man God wants me to be. And he wept. He wept. He went over and put his arms around his wife and he said, I am so sorry for not being the priest of the household that I should have been. So sorry for not being the godly husband to you I should have been. She put her arms around him and we knelt there as we anointed her with oil, symbolizing the total healing that God wants to give to her and to the family. We get up off our knees and we prayed. 
Six months later, I got a letter. They said, Pastor Mark, you are not going to believe this. We went home, and my wife was miraculously healed. Now, time has gone on, and as far as we know, there is no evidence of that cancer. At that same ASI meeting, I anointed another woman. In that instance, we talked about healing. We talked about the fact that God may not always heal instantly. It may be gradually or in the resurrection. We had a precious, precious time. I sensed the moving of the Spirit of God in that room. I sensed the grace of God in that room. A couple weeks later, I got the letter that she was back in the hospital. And a few months later, got word that she had died. Did God work any less in the second meeting than he did in the first? That depends on your theology. It depends on whether you understand right. Did I have any less faith in the second meeting than I had in the first? None at all. None at all. In one instance, God chose to manifest his hand to bring glory to his name. In the other instance, God equally received glory because the woman who died died trusting and believing in the God that would raise her from the dead. That's why all spectacular, sensational manifestations of healing are a sham. Because what they do is they demand that God conform to my will. And they put God to the test based on what I believe I think God should do. And they fail to minister to the heart, mind, and soul to produce the inner healing that only Jesus can give. You don't see this kind of Bible study in the superficiality of our age in public healing meetings. This takes place one-on-one when heart meets heart and mind meets mind and men and women are placed in the hands of the living God. There are three aspects of this oil. The first aspect of this oil is consecration. The second is restoration. Third aspect of the oil. When the another oil in the New Testament... Jesus told a parable about oil. What was it? Virgins. What didn't they have? Because they didn't have oil, what did not happen? Their lamps were not lit. Oil is a symbol of illumination or witness. Oil is a symbol of consecration. Oil is a symbol of restoration. Oil is a symbol of witness. So when we anoint with oil, we say to the person, the reason we use oil is we're, you're, you're consecrated to the glory of God. The reason we use oil is because God longs for a restoration physically, mentally, spiritually. And then we say to them, the reason we use oil is because God wants you to be a witness in sickness or in health. He wants to share his illuminating grace through your life. You can be a witness to others. You can be a light to the world, even in sickness. And I have seen person after person give glory to God and illuminate an entire room of physicians and nurses who have been attending to them. 
I have seen time after time as I've ministered to the sick, as we've anointed people, and God hasn't chosen to heal them initially, but God has allowed them the oil of His grace to illuminate the mind of a husband, a wife, a son, a daughter, who has been drawn closer to Christ even in that death. What is anointing? Anointing is a service of consecration to the glory of God. What is anointing? Anointing is a service of restoration physically, mentally, spiritually into the image of Christ. What is anointing? It's a service where we dedicate ourselves to witness for Christ in every aspect of life in illumination. But we go back to the text in James chapter 5. Take your Bible, please, and go back to James 5. As we mine that text tonight, you will be called to anoint as a physician. And as you come equipped with James chapter 5 and you go over the aspects of consecration and restoration and illumination, you will see the Spirit of God work in a mighty, powerful way in that sick room. Sometimes you will see miraculous healings. Other times you will not. But in each instance, you will see the grace of God manifest. James chapter 5, verse 16, verse 15. And the prayer of faith, verse 14, and then to 15. Is anyone sick among you? Let him, initiative on the person, call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, when you read the phrase, in the name of the Lord, if you take every reference in the Old Testament, every reference in the New Testament, and you trace it through on the name of the Lord, what are you going to find? Name of the Lord. Exodus. What do you find in the name of the Lord? Let his name pass before me. You remember that passage in Exodus? Where is it? Let's go to Exodus. You're taking your Bible, turning to Exodus. Toward the end of the book of Exodus, what is it? About Exodus 33 in that area? Let's see if we're stopping in the right chapter. If we're not, please help me. Exodus, name of the Lord. Yeah, here it is, Exodus chapter 33. What word is associated in the Bible with the name of the Lord? Exodus chapter 33, verse 18. And he said, Please now show me your what? Glory. Then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim the name of the Lord. He said, show me your glory. Then he said, I will proclaim my what? Name. The glory of God, the name of God, and the character of God are all related in the Bible. Revelation chapter 18, uh, I saw another angel come down from heaven and the earth was filled with his glory, filled with his name, filled with his character. So when you anoint with oil in the name of the Lord, what you are really saying is, we are consecrating you as a priest of God to the Most High. We are consecrating you to be restored physically, mentally, and spiritually so that you can illuminate the world with your witness for one purpose. So the name of God will be proclaimed in all the earth for his glory through your character. That's what anointing is about. It is proclaiming the glory of God by declaring his name as good through the character of the one who is anointed. This is a million miles from the cheap sentimental selfishness of the world that says, Lord, heal me or you're not coming through or I can't trust you. It's a million miles from that. This is saying, God, I'm offering up my body as a living sacrifice. I know your will is not for me to be sick, it's to be well. But Lord, if for some reason, in the conflict between good and evil, I can bring glory to you in whatever state I am, I'm going to trust you and never give up. 
if I can bring glory to you in some way through this experience. Now, Lord, I sure hope it's your will to heal me instantly. It may be your will to heal me gradually. It may be your will to heal me in the resurrection. But whatever your will is, let the name of the Lord be glorified in my life. A number of years ago, 1857, Pop Warner was an extremely wealthy and well-to-do businessman in the Midwest of America. During that time, women did not have much opportunity to have an education in the United States. But his two daughters got the best education possible. They got an incredibly good education, Susan and Anna. Their mom had died in their early life, and so Pop Warner put all his emphasis on his girls, all his emphasis on them. And as he did, he got them the best education. 1857 comes along. He's very wealthy. They've not known poverty or sacrifice at all in their life, but they were committed Christians. 1857, there was a Great Depression in the United States. Pop Warner lost all his fortune, everything. He became so uptight, so nervous, so anxious that he eventually died of physical, mental, and emotional exhaustion. Left his two girls alone in their late 20s. They needed to find a way to support themselves, so they began to write, and they wrote many, many books that were bestsellers in America. One of the books they wrote by the Warner sisters was Wide, Wide World. It was a bestseller in the, in the uh, mid-1800s. One of the books they wrote was a book called Say and Seal, Say and Seal. And in that book, there's a little boy. His name is Johnny Fax, and Johnny Fax is dying. He's on his bedside. He's got this fever, perspiration, beads of perspiration are standing on Johnny Fax's face, and he's dying. He's a little boy, nine, ten years old. And as he's dying, Mr. Leitner, who is the key character in the book, comes over and he sits by Johnny Fax's bed. And the little boy looks up into Mr. Leitner's eyes, and he wants some hope. He wants some courage. He wants some word. And Mr. Leitner looks down. He takes the boy's hand, and there's a tear in the old man's eye because he knows the little boy's going to die. And Mr. Leitner begins to recite a poem. And Anna and Susan Warner write a poem for the book that they put in the mouth of Mr. Leitner. And he recites the poem to this little dying boy. It's a child's poem. And it goes like this. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak. Johnny facts, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Jesus loves me, loves me still. Though I am very weak and ill, that I might from sin be free, blood and died upon the tree. 
Jesus loves me, he who died, heaven's gate to open wide. He will wash away my sin. Let his little child come in. Jesus loves me, he will stay close beside me all the way. Thou hast bled and died for me, I will henceforth live for thee. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. And those are the last words that Johnny Fax hears. He dies holding the hands of Mr. Leitner. I would rather know that Jesus loves me and trust him and die than be healed by the devil than live. The most important thing for that patient wavering between life and death is not physical healing. It is to know that Jesus loves me. Though I'm weak and ill, Jesus loves me still. In these last days of earth's history, we can expect miraculous healings, but we can also expect that some of our patients are going to die. But we can know for certain that God's love is with us as much in the miraculous healing of a patient as well as the death of a patient. And we can place them in the hands of a loving God who will one day resurrect them to see his glory forever. One thing is for certain, for me and for you, the most important thing in life is to take those patients and put them in the hands of a loving God Have you been inspired to do that in this Amen Convention? Have you felt the stirring of your heart? Have you sensed that your mission in life is far more than merely to treat physical symptoms? Have you sensed that you are to lift your patience into the hands of a loving God? Would you like to respond to God's grace and God's goodness? In one sentence, can you limit yourself to one sentence? I'd like you in one sentence to stand up and say, this is what God impressed me with during this weekend, and this is what I'm going to do when I go home. One sentence, can you do that? I'm a preacher, I can do it in one sentence. Let's let the Lord work in our hearts tonight a little bit in one of those old-fashioned testimony services. We don't talk about what God did 20 years ago in our life or how we were converted for 28 minutes. But we stand up and in one sentence say, God's been moving on my heart during this particular period of time, and I've sensed the stirring of his spirit, and this is how I'm going to interpret this, and this is what I'm going to do when I go home. What has this weekend meant to you? What's God doing in your life? How's God moving? The time is yours. Your witness will be a blessing to somebody else. You can just stand and give a testimony for Jesus.